Hello, friends. Welcome to the Premature Bible Institute. I'm Doug Scheibel, your free-range podcaster uh, with Ethnos360. And uh, just thank you once again for coming this week to uh, this next lesson. Um, You know, the term Emmanuel means God with us. And God with us is just such a huge, huge statement that God would decide uh, to be with us, to dwell with people and to be their Savior, to redeem them from the lost condition that they're in, the problems that they would have. I hope that this lesson will start to see the immense sacrifice that the Savior endured in order for us to be redeemed, in order to be brought back to Him. Uh, so I just pray that you'll enjoy this lesson. So before we go on to this lesson, let's do a little review from the last one and uh, just some interesting things to talk about. First, uh, some people we talked about, uh, they understood the significance of the Savior's birth. There was Joseph and Mary and Zacharias and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna, the wise men, the shepherds. Those people understood the significance. And in some did not. You know, Herod didn't understand. The religious leaders didn't understand. But then again, maybe they did. Maybe that's why they were so scared. What they didn't understand is who the person was that was coming to be a savior. They thought he was limited. They thought he was vulnerable. They thought he wasn't who he said he was. And uh, boy, they couldn't have been more wrong, could they? But anyway, so those are some of the things. So we also saw that uh, even though Herod had decided that he was going to kill off all those firstborn to make sure he got hold of uh, Jesus, uh, God decides to protect Joseph and his family, uh, and Jesus and his family, uh, and he sends them to Egypt. And then after Herod had died, he brought them back from Egypt, and they uh, went to live in a town called Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grew up. And it's said that he grew up in wisdom. He started gaining wisdom and respect from other people. They appreciated who he was. And then Jesus goes to the temple. When he's 12 years old or about 12 years old, he goes to the temple and he sits down and discusses theological issues. It's really interesting. He was discussing himself, wasn't he? Who he was. And even though they may not have recognized that or that may not have been the main topic, it all boiled down to who am I? And uh, so they were really surprised at what they knew. Remember Mary and Joseph, they couldn't find him. They, they tried to find him. They searched for him for three days, and then they found him in the temple discussing this with those people. So it says that after they left, a really important thing did. He says, Jesus said, you know, I must be about my uh, father's business. But what was his father's business? Was to teach his son, the Lord Jesus, some things that he needed to learn. Not that he wasn't omniscient. That wasn't the point. But there were things that even as God, he hadn't experienced. First of all, he had never experienced being a human. And so his son comes as a human being, and being born in the likeness of people, uh, he suffered a lot of the things that they did, only did it without sin. So he had the temptations, the sibling rivalries. Uh, Maybe not he wasn't a rival, but that was part of who he grew up to be. And God, his father, was teaching him to become more mature, to more to become the ultimate perfect sacrifice, uh, the one who would take care of the sin issue once and for all. So Jesus grew into manhood, uh, a man, manhood, manhood, um, and the most in the most. Um, what do I want to say? The most joyous event in history, which was the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, resulted in their family fleeing and many people being killed as a result. 
So there were consequences to Jesus coming to this earth, not just to be born as a savior, but also as a um, as a an example. And as a result of it, uh, many people lost their lives as a result of this, and they had to flee and learn other things. So, going on from there, now Jesus has grown up; he's older, and um, something starts to happen. And this is what's really interesting. We go back now to the first lesson that we started talking about in the what we call the New Testament, that part that starts with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we come back to a person by the name of John. Now, John was God's messenger to Israel. He was the one that was to prepare the way for the Redeemer, the Messiah, the, the Deliverer. And he was the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. And John was the one who was to prepare that way, like I said, to, for the Deliverer. Now, John believed what God had said about the deliverer. And uh, so he was doing what God told him to do. And God prepared John for this work. Uh, So listen here in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, heaven was going to come down to earth and was going to rule and reign. That was what he was doing. And so uh, um, he was. there was a legitimate offer that that which was promised in the Old Testament was going to take place. So, But before we get into that, what does it say he says, repent? That's the very first thing. So let's just talk about this word repentance. Uh, sometimes we can get confused about it. What does it mean? And, uh, and it, it literally means to have a change of mind. And what they mean is that there is a shift in worldviews, a shift in how you what what you value. So where before I valued drag racing. I used to do that a lot. I won a lot. And so that's what I did. But there was a worldview shift. When I became a believer, I shifted my allegiance from that which would gain me honor to that which would give God honor. And uh, that is what the repentance was all about. I changed my mind about what was important. I changed my mind. No longer were the things that I thought were important were important, but the things that I thought God thought were important were important. And so that's what repentance is. It's a change of worldviews. That which we thought was valid before is no longer valid or of worth. Something else takes its place, and that's what repentance is all about. So... You know, you've heard the old stories about men, us men, when we're driving around, if we get lost, we don't like to admit that we're lost. We like to tell everybody, no, I think we should go down this road, whatever. And it's just that kind of idea we don't want to stop and ask questions. Now, that's the, that's the legend. That's the, the preconceived idea they, people have about us men. And many times there's a lot of truth in that. Um, but it's the same type of thing. It's that you you won't admit that you've got your lost. You're lost, but eventually you have to come to a point where, yeah, I'm lost. I am in trouble here. And so you ask questions. So what you're doing is repenting. Where before you think you can do it, now you don't think you can. And that is a shift. Where Or uh, the other way around, you can say, I didn't think I could do it. Now I can. So part of those things are just a shift in the way of thinking. Now, Israel needed to repent in three areas. Okay, first, they need they needed to change their thinking about God himself, all right? They needed to agree that he was the only true God and that they should serve and worship only him. 
He was to have the preeminence. He was to have the supremacy over everything. That was one area where they needed to repent in. Recognize that God is God and there is no other. All right? Okay, second, they needed to change their thinking about themselves as people. Um, They needed to agree with God that they had disobeyed and sinned against him. All right? They needed to realize that they could never, ever make themselves acceptable to him. That's what the law was all about. The law was not meant to show people how they should live, even though it was. The purpose of it was to show man what he was, a sinner, violating those commands all the time. Uh, It showed man that he was uh, a reprobate, if you want to put it that way, disobedient to God, didn't want to follow him, and so on. So that's what is the second thing. They need to change their thinking about God, need to change their thinking about themselves, and third, they needed to change their thinking about sin itself. Uh, they needed to understand that God hates sin and that the punishment for sin is eternal separation from him in the lake of fire, that there are consequences to not just our actions, but to who we are as sinners. And we need to have something that takes care of that sin issue. Now, John was the prophet that was promised by God who would precede the deliverer. We learned that before in Matthew 3.3, but also in Malachi. But it says this here in Matthew 3.3, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So the scriptures are saying that John was the one that was going to prepare the way for the deliverer. He was the one that was going to set the, the, the path for people to realize he's the guy. He's the one that would point to everybody and say, he's the one. And we'll see that later. Okay, so John, but an interesting thing about John, and this is something I think we really all need to learn and understand. John did not let any worldly comforts distract him uh, from his responsibility to God. Not once. He didn't sit there and say, I want to do my ministry for God. He says, God, what do you want me to do? And this is what he did. So let me read just how, what, how he kept worldly attractions out of his thinking. Matthew 3, 4 says this, And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now there is a naturalist. <laughs> and he he sat down and realized uh, that I can't let anything distract me from what God has sent me to do. I'm to prepare the way of the deliverer. I'm not going to let anything get in my way of doing that. Okay? Um, Now, many of the Jews believed the message that uh, John was telling them about God and about this deliverer. Uh, Verses 5 and 6, it says this, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him. In other words, they went out there. And what? And were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So this is what they did. They admitted those things, that the deliverer was coming. They delivered. They admitted who they were, their problem that they had, and that they needed that their repentance uh, needed to take place. So they changed their minds about God. They changed their minds about their sin. And they changed their minds about their consequences. Excuse me. So they went out there and were doing that. Tremendous thing. Now, many in Israel 
When they heard uh, John's message of repentance and the Messiah coming, they changed their minds or they repented uh, about God, about themselves, and about God's promise of a Redeemer. And so they were waiting for this. They were ready. They said, we want them to, to come. Now, it says that, that they were baptized by him. So I want to talk a little bit about baptism because sometimes this gets a little bit confusing as to why, what the point of baptism is. Okay, now baptism was a symbol of identification. In other words, when people were baptized, what they were saying was, I am identifying with the thing that I'm being baptized for. So um, it is the believer choosing to identify with God. So when I am being baptized as a new believer, I become a believer. I believe God. And so what I do uh, is I say, I choose to identify with God. No longer do I want to serve my old ways. I want to follow the Lord Jesus. I want to follow him. I want to do I want him to be my master, my savior, my lord. All of those things. So it's I think it's more important than sometimes we uh, give it credit for. Sometimes we look at it as just a public declaration that I'm a believer. I think it's more than that. It is a personal commitment to a person to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I am baptized, I've said, I ha- in the words of the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. That's literally what it means. I've chosen to follow him. No more am I going to let the world uh, decide what's right for me. No longer am I going to let my old views and those things decide what's best for me. Now I let God decide. That's what John was doing when he walked around in the camel clothing. It's not that we have to do that. It's just we're not out there to draw attention to ourselves. Our goal is to draw attention to God himself and so on. So uh, they, uh, baptism was a symbol of identification. It is the believer choosing to identify with God, to believe in one's heart, I have decided to follow him and recognize that he has the right to exercise his will over my life. You understand that? That's a big, big thing. So it's more than just this idea that I get baptized and I just tell everybody I'm a believer. Now it's more than that. It's me making a conscious choice. I've changed. I've repented. I no longer want to go the old way. I now want to go this way. All right. I can remember that when I became a believer. Everything from one day to the very next completely changed. What was important to me before was no longer important to me now. Or as it says in Philippians, what things were gained to me, were profitable to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And so the things that were profitable before, I turn my back on and say, no more. God alone is profitable for me. He's the one that's best for me. So we do that. Now, baptism can never, ever make anybody right before God. And it cannot take away sin. It doesn't do that. It is a symbol. It is an identification. It is the result of what has already gone on in the heart, a recognition of God's supremacy and sovereignty over my life. He is the sovereign. That means he is my master, my owner, and has the right to do with me as he sees fit. But always remember this. He will never treat you in a way that is inconsistent with who he is. That's important to remember. So the Old Testament sacrifices could never take away sin, and neither can baptism. 
the only thing that can take away sin is the deliverer. That's it. As a friend of mine says, the good news of the gospel is not that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. He says the good news of the gospel is that God accepts Jesus Christ as your Savior. So think about that. So John also spoke not only to the people that came out to hear him, but he also spoke to the phonies, the people that were there just to be there. You know, they wanted to check out what's going on. They had no interest in following this at all. So here we go in verse 7, it says this, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, he's already, he's admitting there is a wrath that's coming and people need to flee from that wrath and, and hang on to the Lord Jesus. It's kind of like the same way Jacob held on to the angel. Remember at the river Jabbok? And when he says, let me go for the day breaks, he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. It's that idea that we hold on to him and him alone. <coughs> so we do that. Therefore, um, anyway, uh, he's saying this to those guys. They had no interest in being having repentance. They had no interest in changing. They wanted what they had, and they thought it was good enough. Now, John was not a man pleaser. He didn't go out to get the approval of anybody. He could care less. As long as he was pleasing God, that was good enough for him. John told the truth no matter who was present. So that he didn't care whether they were the poorest person there or the rich or the Pharisees or whatever. He told the truth, you know. The Pharisees and the Sadducees never saw themselves as one of the people. Uh, they saw themselves as better than others. They always did. Had nothing to do with wealth. It had all to do with a worldview that they had. We are the sons of Abraham. We have been taught. And too often that's the problem that we have even in our society. People who are better educated, better uh, financially, they're somehow superior to the average Joe. And yes, the average Joe is the one that the Lord Jesus kept going to. And you'll see it as time goes on. Uh, God is the enemy of proud people. How do I know this? James 4, 6. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he doesn't like the proud people at all because it's an arrogance that's not deserved. And it's an arrogance that uh, is it's false. It's a lie. By nature, it's a lie. Okay, because God gives to everybody everything that they have. So God resists the proud, but gives I'm sorry, gives grace to the humble. Matthew three four it says, therefore he tells the Pharisees, bear fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, the repentance takes place. It's the idea that you shift in your worldview and now bear works that prove that, show that that you really have repented. You know. So uh, Matthew 3, 9, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So it wasn't an issue of whether God could have children. It's just that he says, Don't think that just because you're, in, you're a Jewish person that you, God's going to accept you. He doesn't accept that. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Makes no difference what race you are. So many of the leaders acted like Jonah. They thought they were special because they were children of Abraham, and they didn't want anybody else to have these benefits, you know. They did not remember that they were children of Adam also, just like everybody else. They were children just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
just like Noah, just like Seth, just like Cain. We were all children of Adam and deserved punishment. But God, in his mercy and his grace, promised to send a deliverer who would take care of this issue once and for all. They did not remember they were children of Adam. Noah's children were saved from the flood. Remember that? Noah's children were saved from the flood, not because they were Noah's children, but because they believed God and got in the boat. See, the repentance was already there. They believed God, but their actions showed that it, how? But they got in the boat. That's what they did. They walked into that boat, all right, because they knew the destruction was coming. Um, the people of Israel were also saved, not because they were children of Abraham, but because they believed God and looked on the serpent on the pole. Now, we're talking, I, the way that's worded, I kind of, it sounded wrong. What I meant by that is the people in the time of Moses, when they looked on that serpent that was on a pole, they weren't saved because they were children of Abraham. They were saved because they did what God told them to do, which is look at that pole. If you look at it, you'll be saved. If you don't, you'll die. Okay? So they believed God. The repentance was they believed God. The action that followed it was they looked at the serpent. All right. So um, uh, no Jew was saved because he or she was a child of Abraham, but because they believed God. That's why everybody's been saved. Faith has always been the issue, just like Cain and Abel. Abel came to God on God's terms. Cain came to God on his own terms. Repentance was in Abel's heart. He sat down. He says, God is right. I'm not the one. And therefore, his, his works showed that he believed God. He brought the acceptable sacrifice. Cain showed that he didn't believe God because he did not bring the acceptable sacrifice. So Matthew 3.10 says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John was telling them that the time for truth had come. God was going to start the separation process. All right? Bad fruit comes from bad trees. Uh, God was going, I'm sorry, and Adam is our tree, and we are its fruit, his fruit. So just as a bad tree bears bad fruit, so Adam was our tree. He was the trunk, we're the branches. So we come from that, that tree. Therefore, we're bad fruit to begin with. All right? Uh, only God can make a good tree and thereby good fruit. <laughs> and only God can take a bad tree or a bad fruit and turn it into a good one. He created everything. All right? Um, Matthew, in verse 12, it says, His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Uh, boy, that was uh, that's pretty interesting. I'll give you an explanation of that here in just a little bit. Now, John started to teach the people about this deliverer. And uh, he said in verse 11, he says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. All right? So he's telling you something about this deliverer that's different. He's going to baptize, but not with water. He's going to do something different. That's why we want to talk about this baptizing. John knew the difference between being a prophet and being God with us. Okay? John knew he was the prophet that was going to talk about the God with us, the Emmanuel, that deliverer. John knew 
excuse me, that he was just a messenger, but that the Redeemer was the message. You get that? John was the messenger. The Deliverer was the message himself. All right. Um, he knew that the Redeemer would give the people, give people the Holy Spirit and give it to all who trust him. So he would, yes, he would give them the Spirit of God that would come inside them. Now, when I was in India, I was 2004 or five. I can't quite remember. I think it's 2004. I went over to India, and I remember seeing people winnowing. And what they were doing is pounding these grain and stuff like that, beating it and stuff like that, knocking the husks off the grain that was there. And then they would take that grain, put it in a big basket, and start flipping it up in the air. And then they would make it couldn't be too windy, but it would be windy enough that the all the chaff, which was really light, would be blown away. And then all that would be left would be the grain. And so that's what he's talking about here. He's going to pound you guys and keep pounding you until you're all, all the husk is off. And then he's going to start winnowing, and the chaff uh, is uh, going to be blown away. And those are all the people who didn't believe him, and only the grain will be left. And that's those who do. So then something absolutely remarkable happens. I mean, I just, I can't even imagine. I don't know what I would have thought if I had been there. It just was, it's just amazing to me. But it's really, really important that you understand this. So go into verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had, uh, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Okay, verse in Luke uh, 3.23, it says this. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry uh, at about 30 years of age, being, as it was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. So what's happening here, his ministry is now starting. The deliverer is getting ready to act. And he's getting ready to come on the scene, be public about who he is. Up to this point, he's just been preparing, getting ready. The Lord's been, his father has been preparing him for the work that he's getting ready to do. And now he's getting ready to start his ministry. But I think there's some things here that are really, really important to see. Now, Jesus was about 30 years of age when he started his ministry. Okay. Think of yourself. If you were 30 years of age and you're going to redeem the entire human race, I mean, by that, I mean, that's what your job was to do is to redeem people. Everyone was baptized, he says, with the baptism of repentance. In other words, they were to change their mind about who this deliverer was, about who God was, about who they were, and so on. Now, Jesus was perfect. So why um, was he being baptized? See, it wasn't a baptism to remove sin or anything like that because he wasn't a sinner. So what was the point of him being baptized like the other people? The other people were saying, I believe God. And therefore, I'm identifying with God. But Jesus is doing something else. Even though it's also a baptism of identification. Uh, Jesus uh, was, was perfect. So why did he be, was he being baptized? He was identifying with God. 
with the promises in the Old Testament and with John himself. Now, let me explain what I'm saying about that. Uh, He was identifying with God, his Father, all right? He was identifying with his Father in heaven. He was being obedient. And he um, he was also identifying with all the promises in the Old Testament that said all the things about him that he was going to be and do. So he's identifying with those promises. But when I say he was identifying with John, I want to explain why. There's a there's a, the, the part there where John says he tried to prevent him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? In other words, John said, Lord, he says, I don't, this isn't right. He said, I should be baptized by you. You shouldn't be baptized by me. But what the Lord is telling him, he says, listen, he says, John, you don't understand. If I'm not baptized by you, then you're not the one, the messenger that's uh, um, preparing the way for me. Because in the Old Testament, remember what it says? It says, I will send a messenger before you and he shall prepare the path for you. If you don't baptize me, what you're saying is I'm not the one. And if I'm not the one, then you're not the one. And that promise that promise in the Old Testament is false. So what he was doing is by baptizing me, you are telling everybody he's the one. You're identifying with me. I am identifying with you and that promise, that prophecy in the Old Testament also. I'm identifying with my father. So as God the Son, I am the Son of God. But I'm also the Son of Man. So as the Son of Man, I'm representative, I'm man's representative to God. As the Son of God, I am God's representative to man. And so there's these two things. So he was identifying with God and his promises in John. He was also identifying with Israel, that he was the one through the line through which the Redeemer would come. The promise there to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and on and on until that day finally came. But he was also identifying with humanity. He says, I have come to be like you so that you can be redeemed. So that's what he was doing. Um, very important things to remember. He was It was a symbol of identification about the whole thing, that he was the central focus. He was the one that was in between God and men. All right? Okay, uh, chapter 7 of, uh, of Luke 29 through and 30. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. <coughs> but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So what they were saying is, we refuse to be baptized. It wasn't that they hadn't been baptized that was condemning them. It's that they refused to be baptized. So they understood the implications of that baptism, but they just chose not to be identified, (coughs) not to be identified with this person who is the Redeemer. Make sense? Um, So the Pharisees didn't want any part of him. And that was what made them different. But the, even the tax collectors justified by God by saying, we believe you, we agree with you, and they went down and were baptized. The baptism itself is, <coughs> excuse me, got a little something in my throat. The baptism itself wasn't the issue. The baptism, or the belief was, but the baptism is, they said, yeah, you know, we agree with you, and they went down to be baptized. They were identifying with this person who was a deliverer. Uh, Now, God refers to Jesus in a a unique way, doesn't he? He says, this is my beloved what? Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
So he recognized, he proclaims Christ as his son. That's why when people have trouble with him being the son of God, those from other religions, they're missing the point. God himself calls him his son. So that's the issue. Either God's telling the truth or he's lying, one or the other. Uh, he's, and I agree with God that he's telling the truth. God was showing everyone that he had chosen the son of God to be the son of man. Now think that one through. He was telling everyone that he chose the Son of God to be the Son of Man. Important, important titles in, of who he was. Now, John told the people who Jesus was. <laughs> I love this. The next day, in John one twenty nine, it says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think of the assumptions that are built into that statement. Think of the history that's there. Now, look, John, who he's talking to, he's talking to Jewish people. So all of these terms are references to them that they should know about. He saw Jesus come, he said, Behold, and he says, The Lamb. We all know about the sacrifices throughout the Old Testament of God. So it, that is God's Lamb. It isn't man's lamb. It isn't something anybody else grew, but it's the lamb from God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's this idea of redemption. There's uh, from sin of the world, though, but of everybody, not just of Jews and Gentiles, but the whole human race. That's the point, as he came to do that. Now, people had brought sheep as a sacrifice to God since Adam had sinned. They'd been doing it. We see that Adam and Eve were covered with coats of skin. God killed an animal to cover their nakedness. We see that with uh, Abel bringing, bringing an acceptable sacrifice. After the flood, uh, we see Noah and his family offering sacrifices. Abraham with Isaac and God providing a ram in Isaac's place. And so on the tabernacle, the priesthood, the offerings, all of that. We see that throughout the Old Testament, all of these things are taking place. Uh, Abel offered a sheep and God accepted him. Um, God is providing this lamb. I'm sorry, let me go back. God providing this lamb as a sacrifice for mankind. Just like Abel offered a sheep and God accepted him, not because of the lamb, but because he believed God. All right? Abraham brought Isaac to offer him, but God provided a ram to take the place of Isaac, and its blood also had to be spilled. But he didn't accept Isaac and Abraham because of the ram. Except him because they believed him. The ram was the byproduct of that belief. When Israel was in Egypt, God told all the Israelites to kill a sheep, put the blood on the doorpost. And only those who obeyed God were spared his judgment. Okay? The innocent, perfect lambs died in the place of sinful human beings. Now, the people weren't redeemed because uh, the lamb was killed. They were redeemed because they believed God and the lamb being killed was the byproduct of that belief. Okay? Um, that's what it was. Now, the, illustra the illustration um, that was given here was perfect, not cultural. Now, let me, let me I want to stop uh, for just a second because this is an important thing. Many times in missiology, and I uh, grew up on a mission, I shouldn't say grew up, I was on the mission field, and we had to teach and explain things to people. And one of, the, one of the issues today is that some of these cultures don't have a sheep or don't have other things, so they use some other form of sacrifice 
to to um, deal with that. And they call them redemptive analogies. I have a, I I'm I'm concerned about some of that because every picture has it, which is called a type has an anti-type, and what that means is the picture is a picture of something real. All right, so. Um, I ask the question this way: Why did God, why did God choose a lamb to be a redemptive analogy? And most people say, well, because that's what the people use in the culture, and so on and so forth. And then I say, okay, now let me ask this. I says, let me ask it this way. I says, why do you think God created a lamb to be a redemptive analogy? And see, what I'm trying to get at is this: in the first question. What I'm asking is God, or the, the, the answer is saying God's looking for the best option he can find for the culture that it's being given in. Mine is asking it from a different point of view. Mine says God created this lamb to be a redemptive analogy. It's a perfect picture of what God wanted people to see. And so uh, um, one says you're looking for the best option you can get. The other one said from eternity past, God had in mind what he wanted the picture to be. And I think it's more valuable to teach people uh, what that lamb is and what the characteristics of that lamb is. And plus, if we don't teach them that, why are we not wanting to teach that? And many times, I think it's a paternalistic view of people in general that they don't understand. They can't, oh, we have to teach them that. They've never seen a sheep, so therefore they'll never understand. I can tell you... (coughs) I can tell you from hundreds of works that we've been involved in, it's never been a problem. We don't have a problem. The tribal people don't have a problem understanding what a lamb is. You just teach them. Tell them what it is. you know, And they understand. And they see that lamb as the perfect picture of what God wanted to be there. We don't ever think about changing the picture of the tabernacle. We don't think about changing the picture of the ark. We don't think about changing the picture of the serpent on the pole. So why do we think we should change the one picture that was around before there were Jews, which is an animal, a sheep. But we see with, uh, like I said, with uh, Adam and Eve, they were covered with coats of skin. And Abel offered the firstling of his flock, it said, the firstborn of his flock, which are sheep. And so we see this throughout the Old Testament. So why do we think that's just a cultural thing? That was when there was only one culture in the world. And that was Adam Cain, Abel, and from then on. Until the Tower of Babel, there were no other cultures. There was just one. So, anyway, offered that sacrifice. Um, When God was in Egypt, God told all the Israelites to kill a sheep, put the blood on the doorposts, and only those who obeyed God were spared this judgment. And it's like I said, John told everyone who Jesus was and what his purpose was. Behold, the Lamb of God, he's God's Lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. He's going to take care of the sin issue once and for all. And just as God provided a ram to take Isaac's place, so God provided his lamb to the, take the place of sinful people. So in John 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 30 through 34, John says this, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, I want you to stop for just a second. He was before me. So we know that John was conceived uh, about six months before Mary was. So why would he say he was before me? It's because he knows who he is, that he is God the Son and existed in eternity past. So he's saying that. He was before me. 
I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, so God spoke to John, said this, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he... (coughs) (coughs) <coughs> this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen he, I have, uh, and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So that's what John is saying about John the Baptist. Let's put it that way. Um, John may have suspected who the deliverer was, you know, and was going to be, but now he had undeniable evidence of who he was because the Spirit of God descended on Jesus just as God said it would, all right? Now, we don't see miraculous signs to prove who the deliverer is. We don't see those today. Why? Because we have God's word. And if we don't believe God's word, how can we believe the one who gave it? Does that make sense? See, this is the problem. We think we have to have something extra other than God's word. God says, my word is enough. And you'll you'll learn this later on. There'll be an example of this that I will tell you about later on. So John may have suspected who the deliverer was because of growing up in the with Jesus and or with Joseph and Mary and his parents and so on, and may have suspected that Jesus was the one. He may even have known that, for that matter. Uh, I just uh, we don't know much about his early life there, but he knew there was incontrovertible evidence that Jesus was the deliverer when the Spirit of God came and rested upon him, just as God said it would. Now, we don't see, like I said, we don't see signs to prove who the deliverer is, but we have the Word of God to declare it and to give us examples. And like I said, if we don't believe God's Word, how can we believe the one who gave His Word? Understand? Okay. So, conclusion, Jesus was unique, all right? He was the deliverer. He was the Messiah. He was the promised one. He was the Son of God. He was the Son of Man. He was born of a virgin, yet He was eternal. He was God, yet man. And next week, Jesus starts His work. So, thank you guys so much for listening to this. And just remember, if you want to listen to these podcasts, the audio podcasts, which you obviously are now, or if you want to watch the video podcasts on either one, get on your favorite audio podcast or get onto YouTube and just look up my name, Doug Doug Scheibel, S-C-H-A-I-B-L-E, two different words there. And uh, please just uh, subscribe and have your friends uh, get on there, and this would be a good resource for them too. And uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Take care. Bye.